I guess I want to be known for making people feel seen. You know, if everyone, if, if I can be the kind of person that, um, I guess this is long, but I lost a friend um, when I was younger, when I was like 16, and he was one of the most popular kids in the school. And um, so many people who were like not popular were like, Javi, you know, he always said hi to me. He always stood up for me. He always blah, blah, blah. Like I, I, and, and what I feel like now in my adult language is like he made people, every kind of person feel seen and valued. So if I can do that, that would be huge. That was Faith Briggs, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 94. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. Even if it's confusing or messy, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, even if we're embarrassed about it, we tell the truth. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You won't find any 10-day, six-step life hacking plans for anything. I'm totally over that approach, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which, warning, often means we use adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads, you won't hear any sponsor promotions. This show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. You're the best, and I'm so ridiculously grateful that you're helping me to bring more real talk and honesty into the world. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. But first, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live, the small, fun, in-person event series that kicks off in London in early August. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Faith Briggs. Faith is a self-dubbed professional nerd. 
a Brooklyn-based documentary filmmaker passionate about sharing contemporary stories from diverse communities. She believes that artists have a responsibility to provoke the social conscience of a society, and it's her desire to create nuanced work exploring themes of global citizenship and representation. When she's not on an adventure with Columbia Sportswear, where she works as the director of toughness, yes, that's a thing, and she'll tell us all about it, Faith can be found running trails upstate or sprinting down Fifth Avenue. She's a fixture in the urban running community and a member of the Black Roses NYC running team. In this episode, she shares stories from her first few months of travel and adventure as director of toughness for Columbia Sportswear. We talk about the meaning of toughness, how running can lead to confidence, how to handle injuries, why love is a great motivator, why representation in art and media really matters, and so much more. Faith's stories and perspective really touched me and made me think a ton, and I hope the same is true for you. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are rolling. Faith, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited. It's funny how we met through our friend Kate Grace, who's been on the show a couple of times. She's so funny. Whenever I go to track meets of hers, which I guess is like pretty often or whenever she's in the area, it's cute. She's like concerned that I'm going to be sitting alone, right? She likes to friend (laughs) matchmake like this person's here. This person's here. You could be friends with this person. And um, I liked that she set us up on a little track meet date. Definitely. Yeah. She's, she's hilarious. It was so nice. I'm like, you're so busy, like being the best in running and you're still like texting like, Oh, this is what my friend looks like. Yeah. It's really it's amazing. And I was like, aren't you supposed to be warming up and like focusing on competition? <laughs> she's like, here's my friend, go sit with her. <laughs> <adorable>. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And I mean, we only talked for, I mean, not that long, but I was definitely like, I have a lot of questions for you and then you're following you on Instagram has been amazing. And so I'm really glad that we have the chance to chat. Oh, very cool. Thank thank you. So tell me, what are you totally obsessed with lately? Uh, what am I totally obsessed with lately? <laughs> I guess the answer is like something that I'm always kind of like blushing as I say, but I'm kind of totally obsessed with fly fishing right now. Okay, <laughs> like, tell me more. Last night I was watching A River Runs Through It, which is like, I don't even know some early Brad Pitt from the 90s thing because like part of it is about fly fishing. I wouldn't mention it to me. And it's just, it's so funny. So I think probably more of an explanation um, about what I'm doing is required to give context. But I guess we can get into the details of my job with Columbia Sportswear um, a little later. But basically, um, as part of my job, a little while ago, I got the instructions of you need to learn how to fly fish. And I was just like, not really sure how to go about doing that. And, um, but I mean, got linked up with this incredible, incredible guy named Chad Brown, who's a Portland based fly fisherman. And, um, his story is absolutely incredible. And like spending time with him on the river, he's a vet and he has, um, Axe the service dog who comes out with us. And, um, he's an African-American guy and he does all this work with inner city kids and bringing them outdoors. And I think like my first experience of being out on the river fly fishing with him, um, really made me just enjoy the meditative aspects of being, you know, standing in the middle of a river with the water kind of running around you. And then, it's a very skill-based thing and it's very precise and it's very specific. And I think, you know, my background as a runner, 
the only thing specific is like handoffs, you know, like where I went handoffs, like, yes, that's, that's precise. And, and there's other things about precision, but it's, it, I, my life has never really been about finesse. <laughs> and so I think I'm really enjoying this complete departure. And then you get to catch fish. And even if you don't catch fish, it's fun. When you catch fish, it's like such a, a strange and tangible reward for the thing you've been practicing doing. So I think in that sense, I'm just like, really, I'm pretty obsessed with fly fishing. That's so funny. Did you grow up as an outdoorsy kid? What's your sort of outdoor background? You know, it's, it's been kind of funny, even like saying the outdoors, I've been like joking with people this year. Cause I'm just like, I never even said that. I was like, I'm going to go outside, <laughs> you know, but even I spent every pretty much like with a few exceptions every summer of my life working or attending this summer camp um in upstate new york which is the same summer camp that my parents used to work at the people that run it like my parents met as camp counselors so um like my god's parents run the, the camp now like camp is a part of our life um but it was it was always like camp so i definitely did like hiking and you know, running around and swimming about like arts and crafts and those kind of things. So I think I definitely would say like I'm a camp kid. Um, but in terms of, you know, we didn't go on family vacations. We didn't we didn't go camping like as a family. We didn't you know, like fish and, and stuff like that. Um, so I didn't grow up with this idea of like the outdoors or adventure. I definitely grew up with like a spend a lot of time outside. Like we don't watch, you know, TV. We go outside. I loved, I've always loved like climbing trees. And, you know, I was the kind of kid that was like definitely a tomboy and getting in trouble at camp because I like threw a spider on a girl or something like that. So I think I've always loved being outside. Um, but the idea of like the outdoors as this whole separate space is something that um, is actually really new to me and something I think is, is really interesting. That's funny. I um, was a camp kid as well, although <laughs> I, I mean, I, I grew up in Manhattan and in London, right? So definitely big cities and never really did outdoor. The thing that I think of outdoorsy stuff now, right? Like being dirty or camping right. or do, like, mm-hmm. like literally none of that. I've said this before that the most outdoorsy thing my parents have ever done is like eat dinner on a patio. Like it's right. not like I was not <laughs> taught to value that kind of stuff. And I feel like camp exists. Like, cause I used to go to a sleepaway camp um, in Massachusetts and it's, I think it's a bigger thing on the East coast, this sort of like camp culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so definitely was there, but still never really enjoyed. Like I was the kid who liked when it was raining and then we had to do indoor activity. So it's my parents are like, can't understand what happened to me that now I want to you know like go hiking and sleep on the ground and like poop right. in the woods and they're like what what are you what happened to our child like what <laughs> so totally. it, it, it's funny the things we wind up sort of getting into as an adult even if that wasn't really how we were raised mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it, it really is my parents are similar they're just like you're where you're doing what <laughs> they're excited about it but they're also just kind of like. They, they just, they kind of laughed to themselves a lot. Like, how did our kid get there? Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So let's talk about your current job with Columbia. Tell me, what is the job? How did you get it? What was the application interview process? I have so many questions about this job. <laughs> totally. You know, it's so funny. I When people are asking what I'm doing, I always kind of like giggle. And I'm like, I'm an active brand ambassador. And if there's a friend of mine with me, they're like, she's the director of toughness. And I'm just like, oh my God, why are they calling it that? It's, I mean, it, that's my job title. My job title is that I am one of the directors of toughness for Columbia Sportswear. And it, uh, I'm not a spokesperson for Columbia, but um, I'm currently in 
one of their um, marketing campaigns and I work as a gear tester. Um, so on all the trips that we go on, we basically wear different Columbia gear and then um, have these incredible, amazing experiences. Pretty much like on a monthly basis, we go on some kind of trip and um, basically our job is to like, you know, talk about and experience how the gear fit our surroundings. Um, and gosh, how did I get the job? I mean, I still feel like every day I'm like, how did I get <laughs> here? Um, it's kind of random. And I, I love to tell people that I'm here because I'm a nerd. Um, because I, so I was working at Discovery. Um, I was working at the Discovery Channel in the documentary department. And um, I was a production coordinator and my background's in documentary and I've always been really interested in media and representation. Um, and so I love doc for that reason because you just get to learn all these amazing stories. Um, I have a friend named Andia Winslow who is an athlete and an activist and she had done a trip with the National Parks Foundation called Find Your Park. And I saw her post about it um, last year probably around this time. Um, and she wrote, um, this was the best thing I'd ever done. It was so amazing. You should definitely apply. And I was like, what is this thing? Like find your park. And it was, um, it's a trip and they do different kinds focused on different, um, sorts of people that they're trying to attract to apply to it. But they work with people who either have a background in storytelling or social media of some sort. And they bring you to, um, a series of parks, um, and it's a different kind of geographical location each year. And so my year, last year, I, I applied to the program, was accepted to it um, with eight other, just like, I was in awe of how talented the people were. That's a whole nother story. But um, And I also was like, what am I doing here? Because my background's in doc, but these people were like incredible photographers, like 56,000 followers on Instagram, like from, and I was just like, I have like, it's just, it was so funny because I felt like a fish out of water um, in many ways, but I'm a runner. And so uh, it was amazing. I got to go like running in Yosemite and run on these trails. And I was pretty new to trail running. Um, but it was, it was just so much fun. And I happened to be with people who were taking photos and that kind of thing. And so I think and it was partially sponsored by Columbia. Um, and so their social media person had come and told us that they had this job opening up. And I remember her being like, you know, you should apply. And I was like, that's really cute. Like, these are my vacation days. <laughs> you know, like I was just kind of like, I use my vacation days for this year. I have a job. It is my full-time job. I love it. You know, I'm on a good track there. Um, but when it came down to apply for it, I think I must have seen it. At that point, I was connected to Columbia on all their social media channels. And I must have seen it. And I looked and I was like, well, I mean, it doesn't hurt to apply. Right. And the first part of the application process was literally like put in your social media handles in terms of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I think. So put those things in, got a follow up invite to a, an interview in New York um, later on. And so it was so funny because it was like invited us to go to the pier in um, New York and Brooklyn. That's where we we're supposed to meet up. And I had seen um, an interview from the Mount Hood, like Oregon interview, and someone had been like kind of like mountain running as part of the interview process, and then having to go up to the top and like talk to this person and have these like kind of funny questions um, yelled yelled at them. Um, so it was a kind of funny, like jokey video, but like intense and not what you would normally think you're doing at an interview. So I was like showed up kind of with my running bag because being from New York, I was like, okay, like what are they going to have us do? 
they'll probably throw us in a van and drive us like up to Breakneck Bridge and Beacon and we'll like have to do some running or something. And so I get there and I was, um, oh my gosh, there's a whole nother story. I was like late and then I got into a, a cab and of course the cab just based on the way that um, New York is set up and it's, it's kind of hard to explain if you're not there, but I, I got dropped off at the top of a series of highways and I was probably like 0.2, you know, miles away. But in order to get there, I was actually a mile away on foot. And so I ran. So I, because I was like, oh my God, I can't be late. Like this is really intense. And I, it was like, I basically had to like get there in seven minutes or something like that. So I showed up huffing and puffing and whoever was at the desk when I showed up just kind of like laughed and was like, you must be fake. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm not going to get this job now. I think I got there at like 12.02 and it was like, whatever. I didn't know. I was like, that's going to be the thing. Cause you, you know, you should be on time for things. And so turns out they, um, they end up throwing us in kayaks and having us kayak across the East River to Randall's Island um, after doing this kind of like background story, like showing us pictures and just like kind of funny things. Um, and I was really surprised. I was the only one at the interview from New York City and therefore the only one who, when seeing the words like the pier, were like, just never thought we'd do anything related to water because you don't get into the East River. Like, right. like, okay. I'm eating pizza if I go to the pier or like drinking beers or maybe playing basketball or skateboarding, but like not getting in the water. So it was, it was kind of funny how I was the local and I was therefore, you know, the least um, prepared. But yeah, I mean, honestly, it was a shock. After that, we had a Skype interview and we had writing samples. Um, and then when I got the job offer, I was really really shocked um just because I am you know newer to a lot of these activities and um I really thought that they'd be looking for someone that was like this intense skier and you know had 20,000 followers on Instagram already and blah 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 and all this stuff and um they really weren't they were really looking for someone for whom these experiences would be new and um you know you you'd have authentic uh responses to new experiences and um yeah so when I realized someone wanted to, you know, give me the opportunity to travel for 10 months, um, I just was like, well, it was a hard decision um, to leave my job because I really love my job. And it's always scary to kind of like do something new. Um, and I think just in terms of like when you're on a track and you finally see a track in front of you that seems really clear to depart from that is is um, a really kind of scary thing. But um once I realized, once I took the job, I was like totally, totally ready. But I always tell people it's because I'm a nerd. Because if it wasn't for the Parks Foundation thing, which was something I had to like, do, you know, do an application about and talk about why I'm passionate about, um, you know, uh, people's um, ability to access the public lands in their area and learn more about their country and stuff like that, I would never, I would never have gotten to where I am now. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that you were talking about when you were talking about that, that Parks trip that you went on, um, kind of a, a imposter syndrome almost, right? Like, who am I to be here when, you know, these incredible photographers or whatever have 50,000 followers on Instagram? Like, so how did you go from feeling that to, 
I don't know, I guess then like doing the app, doing this other application and sort of like moving down this path anyway, because I feel like some version of imposter syndrome can really easily stop people from doing things that are new, that are scary. You know, you mentioned getting off of a relatively established track that you loved and could see the next steps. Like, how did you, I don't know, like get the confidence to do that? <sighs> totally. You know, and I think for me, it's running. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's so funny um, because um, I think that specifically about the parks trip, um, you know, I saw these incredible photographers and people that, you know, some of them were still friends and we like got up early and went and tried to do, you know, um, catch the sunrise and do astrophotography and all this stuff that um, I think is really incredible. But when it really comes down to it, part of me like doesn't really care that much, <laughs> you know, about like getting all the stars. Like, I think those pictures are so incredible. But I also just like, it's not my thing. And I don't put all the effort in to learn how to do it. Um, but what I did realize was like, the cool thing that I was doing was running, you know, so when everyone else was biking, I was running, when everyone else was hiking, I was running. And I realized that that was something that everyone else thought was really cool. And, um, you know, other people were um, inspired by that. And I was, I was the only person I saw running in Yosemite. And um, I'm sure there are other people all the time, but I was actually completely shocked by that, because there's such cool trails. And, you know, even beyond the group that I was with, I, you know, would I think the fact that I was running allowed me to interact differently with the people that I was seeing, whether it was um, people doing trail maintenance or, you know, older folks who you could tell were like out there with their trekking poles and have been doing this for a long time or like younger groups of um, women that were out hiking together. I think everyone's reaction to me running, um, you know, things that were difficult was really interesting. And I think that I, I do have a lot of friends in New York who have figured out ways to um, make running and um, a part of their life and their livelihood. And I think that um, watching them has been inspiring to me because I, you know, I ran with Kate in college. I did not go to the Olympics. <laughs> you know, so when I finished college, I was like, all right, that's it for running. And um, coming back to it, um, and having it as something that, you know, just always makes me feel really strong and powerful and able, um, which even like, this is just a slight departure, but when we first started talking, like, how's the morning? I was like, it was okay. And it's cause I had a, just like an awful run this morning. I had this run where I was like trying to work on Caden's work and I was like miserable. And I was like, this feels terrible. I'm exhausting myself. I'm slow right now and blah, blah, blah. So, so I don't want to say that like running, is always just like full of glory um, because it's definitely hard to, but I, I got to a point where I was like, just get home. You just get, you just got 10, I ran 3.5 miles and I, I had intended to run 10, you know? So like, it's not always glorious, but I think just like in the very end, when it came down to it, I was like, all you need to do is run home and you can do that. And it's like a tiny little goal, but something that every time I'm able to complete it, I do feel a sense of confidence. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the fact that my running resonated with people um, in the park definitely made me just consider the um, importance of of it there, too. Um, yeah, I think hopefully that makes sense. It's a strange thing, but somehow um, somehow running in a different environment, I think, gave me the confidence to trust that 
skill of mine as, um, you know, something I think all the time we're thinking about, like, what are my marketable skills? And I'm always looking around, like, just like grasping at straws because I have no idea what they are. Uh, I'm not like a doctor, you know, a lawyer or a certified teacher or anything like that. But I think somehow I'm beginning to see um, that just like wanting to have relationships with people um, is a skill too. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. That's something that I think about a lot, this idea that we really easily undervalue sort of our own skills or gifts or the things that, like running in that situation, right? Like uh, you had to be sort of reminded that, oh, wait, this is something that I'm bringing to this, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to, it's so easy to just look at what other people are doing and to feel that sort of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think any, especially those of us who do have sort of not traditional jobs, like anything that doesn't fall into like one of the, career categories that you would have thought existed when you were five or six years old, right? Like the things you mentioned, like being a teacher, being a doctor, being a lawyer, these are the, the, that was like the only things that I thought that a person could be, right? Mm -hmm. And when you do something that's not necessarily in one of those boxes that has those specific hard skills that are taught at school, right? Then it's really easy, I think, to not just like to not place as much value on it. Like even like you said, like really valuing relationships with people and like building those relationships, like that's a skill, right? That's something. And I, again, I mean, clearly this like is preaching to the choir because I I do a non-traditional thing, but yeah, I think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So you get this job, you are one of the directors of toughness, which by the way, that's like the best job title. I know maybe it makes you cringe, but it's kind of amazing. So tell me a few of the stories of what you've done so far in this role. What's been most memorable? Oh man, it's, there's so much, there's so much. It has been just a completely life-changing experience. Um, and I mean, I could talk about it forever, but I think, you know, people have recently been asking like, what's your favorite trip? And I, I have to talk about, we went to this area of Colombia, um, outside of the, well, inside actually, um, it's the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta mountains. And it's the highest, I believe, coastal mountain range, certainly in, um, Latin America, but potentially in the world. And, um, you can, if you go at the right time in the morning, you can stand on the beach and look up and see these snow-covered mountains. Um, so that in itself was cool, but what was really cool to me was this is actually indigenous territory. So the people that live there are descendants of the Tirona, uh, the Tirona um, indigenous people who basically like hung out in the 1500s when the conquistadors came and then the 1600s they were like actually we're gonna have to get out of here because like we see where this is going (laughs) um probably not in those words but and so then they went up into the mountains and based on the geography were able to maintain their culture were able to stay alive um and still live in different pockets still live very traditionally and the city that we went to is a place where I'm actually not allowed to say the name of it. I'm not allowed to say how to get there. Um, and we had to get permission to walk through because they don't want people to know where they are. And um, they, I mean, it was fascinating. So the the people that we went to go visit are called the Kogi. We had to, you know, leave, um, like get to Santa Marta, drive to another smaller town, sleep there, drive another few hours until you know you're beyond where roads can be meet up with these mules trek for five or six more hours and then out of nowhere I look up and there's like a there's like a little town of a village of thatched roofs kind of like springing out of nowhere and a group of probably eight 
or nine people like looking down at us from this ridge watching us arrive and everyone's wearing all white and everyone has this kind of like long black hair and um, there's some little kids and there's some older people and it was kind of like this wild storybook experience and definitely a little bit intimidating because what we were doing was going there to ask permission to travel um, through their town and then go up to the lakes Um, and it was going to be another four days no another three days trekking um, from the village to get up there but we needed their permission to go and um, so we, I mean, when we first got there, we even needed, it was raining. It's a rainforest. It rains a lot. And we needed their permission to, um, we were going to stay in the village that night. And we like had to like stand under this kind of like thatched roof hut outside before we could get permission to go into a hut to then wait for the um, spiritual leader to come see us and talk to us. And we saw him and he was like granted us um you know the ability to spend the night and then the next morning we had to go talk to him and he you know and this is all um there were only like two people that really spoke spanish in the town and um one of them is a is a kogi guy who has been living outside the village but has a relationship with everyone it's where he was born but not where he grew up um and so he dresses a little bit differently and he um like had a cell phone you know and um the village is kept very traditional kind of on purpose. Like they do have pots and pans um, and rubber boots and machetes from outside of the village that they trade these bags that the women are sewing um, often all the time almost. Um, But it's, I mean, it's super traditional. And so we had to tell him, um, he asked us, and it's funny because Kogi to Spanish is like seven seven words per one word. So everything took quite a, a bit of time. Um, often going from English to Spanish to Kogi. Um, but we basically told him what our intentions were and he, um, allowed us to go up. And later on when I asked him, um, we did a little interview with him. I speak Spanish, so I would speak to one person in Spanish who would speak to him in Kogi. And, um, I asked him why he let us go. And he said that, um, all of us had stated intentions that didn't have anything to do with changing, um, what was there. And I thought that was really kind of fascinating. And, he also had this, he was like, you know, look what they did to the rivers down there. The water down there, the, it doesn't rain as much. The, the water is warm. You know, up here, like if we're gone in 100 years, you'll never know that we were here. And like, we have to protect the, the water up here. And I was just like, fascinated by that. Um, and the other thing that was so cool. So then when we were walking up to the sacred lakes, we had this guy with us who's named Mauricio and he didn't speak Spanish. He's an he said he's probably about 65, <laughs> is what he said. Um, and he's barefoot the whole time, going up to 14,500 feet with us, like getting into some pretty cold weather. And But he would take us through these ceremonies um, throughout the trek. And he would be like, okay, we got to this point. The vegetation's changing. This is the big tree. All of this would be translated to us. Um, and he'd be like, here, you have to take these leaves and you need to like, you know, brush your legs in this very specific pattern that he'd show us and then, um, you know, brush away your negative energy and leave it here. Don't take anything from down there up here. Like the air appears pure and the trees help purify the air. And it was just really fascinating because for me, the culture had um, within it, and the same thing when we got up to the lakes, it was like, you know, if you jump in, some people get sent up to the lakes and if they swim in the lake, it's, it's a symbol of starting Un Camino Nuevo, like a new path. Um, 
And so there were, the culture has all of these built in ways of like reminding yourself to get rid of negative energy um, and giving yourself the opportunity to start fresh. And that to me was a really powerful thing. I'm like, man, I wish we had more of that. You know, these like built in ceremonies, like, okay, you passed the empire state building, like time to start new, like time to give yourself a rest, like be kind to yourself today. You know, we don't really have that. Um, so I, 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 I felt really inspired by, um, being able to be there. Um, that's one story. I mean, that kind of, <laughs> um, you know, one of the other things we, we got to in, in a very different um, setting, we were offshore fishing off the coast of Miami. Um, and uh, my boat had two awesome women. So it's me and these two awesome women. And when I found there was a captain that was a lady, I was like, I want to be on her boat. And then we met and um, the captain of the boat, this woman, Lee Lavery, she's 71 years old and she's the president of the Broward chapter of Ladies Let's Go Fishing. And um, her first mate was this um, woman, Deb. And I just immediately felt like they were my aunts. I was just like, oh, this is my family now. <laughs> and we're on the boat and we're, you know, I'm getting there and she's like, okay, like bridle this gog. And I'm like, what are you saying? And she's like <laughs> showing me how to, you know, stick the hook through the certain part of this goggle that we're using for bait because we're using live bait and we're using different kinds of, you know, like a floating technique and then a sinking technique and all these different things and showing me how to tie knots. And it was just incredible. Um, and the women were just like so awesome to be with. And they're like, ladies are good at fishing. Like we have finesse. And, but also telling me stories, you know, about like just what, how they're treated differently sometimes as women on the water and underestimated. And, you know, her boat's called the lady fish. And, um, you know, she was like, yeah, we kind of get stopped more, you know, than other boats, I think. So it was just, I mean, so fascinating. Um, and I had so much fun with these ladies. And that's one of the things that's been so cool about these trips is I've gotten to be introduced to these different sports, um, and these different outdoor activities from, the most incredible people who are really like down and open to sharing their passion with me. And so I think I've been thinking a lot about the importance of an introduction for people. So it's not like I had to, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to go by myself and find the right fly fishing rod and walk into a shop where I didn't know anything and ask someone to help me and, you know, not know the answer to their questions and maybe feel intimidated that, you know, they're going to laugh at me if I'm trying to do something I know nothing about. And then having like get to the rock, the, the, the river and like trying, you know, like I've, instead of having to navigate these new and sometimes intimidating spaces by myself, I've had the most incredible people wanting to introduce me to them. And I, and I think that's, um, that's, that's hugely important. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. that's how I mean, I definitely agree. I think it even sounds silly to say, like, it's scary to do new things, you know, because of course, mm -hmm. but it really is. And and especially when it's something, you know, we don't like things that we're not good at for the most part. I mean, at least I don't. I, I don't think that I'm alone in that, right? It's it's kind of that, like, first day on a new job feeling where you're, you know, you don't know what to do or where to go or where anything is. And, you know, there's something that's scary and disorienting about that. And like you said, intimidating and, you know, having, yeah, a great introduction by people who are passionate and really knowledgeable and patient. And, mm -hmm. you know, even in their expertise, still remember what it was like to be new. There's something about that that just, like, is I don't know. It's so valuable. Yeah. No, I completely agree. So of all of the different trips that you've done so far, 
what I don't know necessarily which trip, but what what's been the most physically challenging thing? Has there been anything where you're like, wow, I really don't know that I, if I can do this? I mean, Mount Shasta. <laughs> we and I, I don't even think it. I, it wasn't physically challenging. I mean, it, it was physically challenging, but the part that made me think, I don't know if I can do this, wasn't so much the physical as it was the like kind of emotional um, aspect of it. I, you know, it's 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 interesting because it was actually great. We went with um, a, a um, these two guides from Shasta Mountain Guides, and before we started walking, we were standing in this circle and. This guy, Eric's been guiding for, I don't know, like 20, 20 years at least. And he was like, hey, okay, before we get going, let's talk about our expectations and like what we're looking forward to. And we talked about, you know, mountaineering. And my crew is, um, so we have a, a four-person production crew, um, one, one photographer and three people who are working specifically on the video. And then it's Mark, who's my partner, um, the other director of Toughness, and myself. So we're usually six. And everyone went around and kind of started talking about what they were thinking about going up the mountain. And I was so shocked and so happy that people were like, yeah, it's a suffer fest. Like I actually don't really like climbing up mountains. Because you know, me, I felt like going into it that I'm this person that's like, it doesn't, partially I've in once again, like imposter syndrome, right? Like I've been like, is it bad that I'm not obsessed with mountains? You know, like we're all supposed to be like mountain babes, like, uh, love the mountains. And I'm a little bit like, yeah, like it's cold up there. Um, <laughs> you know, like why are we going up? And like, we walk up, look around, it's really beautiful. And then we come down, you know? So I've just been, I didn't really get it. And I had never done in, in Colombia, it was a trek, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't technical. Um, even though it was the same height, 14, five, um, it wasn't technical. And so it, it really put me at ease to know that everyone wasn't just like super stoked on mountains, you know, which was my, um, which was my, and, and calling it a suffer fest also helped me, but you know, we're going, um, we did it and we, we, we got partway up, maybe we're at about like 12,000 feet elevation and, I hear a story, like, which is just like, of course, the exact wrong time to hear this story. But we decided we were going up the West Face, um, which is not the, the, the most traditional route to climb Mount Shasta. Um, so, and partially that was because there'd be less people there and it's um, better for filming. I'm short roped into my guide. And um, for people that don't know what short roping is, it's basically a method of like roping you to the person in front of you. And it can be you know, um, a method to help with the pace. Um, it can be a method to help with, um, the boot pack. So making sure everyone's stepping, um, you know, right in each other's steps or, um, you know, if I'm getting tired and woozy, it's a, a method of them like being able to keep an eye on me or helping me or giving me strength kind of thing. So I had a, a major headache, but otherwise I was pretty okay. And I was actually really not liking being short roped, um, short roping because, um, you can feel the pressure of the, of the other person's body. And so like, if we're, if we're walking completely in step, we're good because we're going in the same rhythm. But if we're out of step and there, there becomes that like some tension goes on the line, it was making me feel really uncomfortable because I wasn't in control. 
right? So we go back to this thing of like, I want to go my own pace. And that's one of the things I love about running. And I always say, I'm always like one of the mantras, we know, we all talk about running mantras all the time. One of the things I just repeat, I'm like, run your own race, go your own pace, run your own race, go your own pace, you know? And that's like one of the things that helps me when I'm running. And so um, I, I felt like I wasn't going my own pace and it was making me feel kind of like panicky. And then I hear this story about someone who had fallen on the same face we were on, who um, hadn't been able to self-arrest, had slid all the way down the face that I'm looking at and whose clothes had melted like pretty much into their skin. And the, the words used to describe the whole affair were like, and then at the end, they were a bloody mess. And I just like, within two minutes of hearing the story, started hyperventilating. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like understandably that's why? horrifying <laughs> why am I here why am I here you know and, and I know it's dangerous I know that people can like pendulum off and pull the other people down I'm like I've never self-arrest before I practice but like what if you know so I'm just been like and the funny thing is and I, I think this is something that you know I've been thinking about a lot is and and I'm and I it's really complicated sometimes to talk about race in terms of my perspective and my experience, but I do think that it's something that is constantly there and constantly at play. And I think that the idea of like safety and survival is just something that I've always thought about really differently in my community. Like, and I, you know, I'm very um, active in in terms of just like needing to talk about um, the, social issues that still exist in our country today. And so for me, I think I, I had the perspective where I'm like, uh, why am I putting myself at risk like for funsies? <laughs> you know, there's enough things happening. Like my community has always been like safety and survival. <laughs> and now I'm like up on the side of this mountain, like at risk, like at death for what? <laughs> you know, like there's enough things in my life that threaten my life. Um, you know, so it, it's a kind of strange thing, but I can't help but kind of think that way. And so I think I just like, had this other level of like, you are putting yourself at risk for what? Um, and so it becomes this big, like philosophical question for me as I'm halfway up Shasta, um, where I, I literally like, I just lost it and had to like cry and then had to like get myself back together and got up to you know the top of the West face and really considered not going to the summit um, because I didn't, feel like super motivated to do. I was like, okay, we finished the route. We're here. Um, I've got this banging headache. And, um, you know, if I'm giving myself a scale of one to 10 on how I'm really feeling, I feel like I'm like a six. But what if I get up there and I start getting more altitude sickness and I'm up to a 10 and then everyone has to worry about getting me down. I don't want to be a burden to other people. Like, you know, I already feel accomplished having gotten myself this far. So if we're talking about like me and my needs and what I need to feel like confident, I'm good. Um, but then, you know, I was thinking about my team and, um, you know, honestly, like my job and the video and, um, it, I think going up to the top was more, and it's really interesting. I was listening to this, um, I love on being the podcast by Krista Tippett and there's an episode with James Barraz talking about courage. And there's this woman in the audience that like, basically he asked this question about what makes us find courage and she, you know, raises her hand and talks about love as a really powerful motivator. And I think when it, when I really think of it, I'm like, I do actually love 
my team. I love my crew and going up there together and all of us doing it together when one of the other guys was definitely feeling, um, you know, the altitude as well and struggling, but they're up there running ahead to take pictures and carrying all this crazy camera gear. And I think that when it came down to it, like trying to go to the top, I was like, you know, I do want this to be something that we do together and something that we accomplish together. And so I did end up, um, summiting and then like immediately just needing to get down and thank God for glissading, which is this new thing that I didn't know about, which is basically like sliding on your butt down a mountain. And it's just like the best thing. I was like, Oh my God, I get to sled down. This is amazing. It's like tobogganing like a kid, but that whole, um, everything about Mount Shasta and then even kind of, I hung back a little bit while I was, while we were walking out, um, at the very, very end. And, you know, we were down at the, at the bottom and it's just like, you're walking kind of through this valley and everything's just snowy and there are these trees around you. And I like really just had this moment of really appreciating the fact that I did feel like I was just like alone for a little while. Like I I hung back behind um, everyone else quite a bit and just um, really being in awe of Shasta is also, um, uh, wilderness um like designated wilderness and I think you know one of the things that the the, these experiences have really taught me is just just how in awe of uh the landscape I I am and not just from a like beauty standpoint but from a wow you know like humans are dealing with trying to climb a mountain and the mountain's been around for ages and you know we're we're still figuring out how to do it and and how to navigate that and um i think same thing with like we were kayaking recently and like the river is strong you know and and we're not working against the river we're trying to figure out how to work with it so that we don't fall out of our boats right like we're trying to navigate through these incredible spaces that exist without us and um i think like yeah i just had these i i really like those moments of feeling just absolutely tiny um, I yeah. love that too. I feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it's funny it, in sort of, I don't even think cynical is the right word, but it gives me comfort that like that mountain's going to be there. Like even after we're done fucking everything up and do whatever, like we're going to be gone and like Shasta's totally. going to be like, I'm all right. You know what I mean? Like it's just, mm-hmm. there's something comforting about like it, it will outlast us. Yeah. Agreed. So I want to go back to your job title for a second, or just this idea of toughness. Do you self-describe as someone who's tough? Do you feel like you've always been tough or is that something that you learned along the way somewhere? You know, I definitely don't, I don't self-describe as being tough. I I think that I've always been described that way. Um, Mm. and I don't think always like in a positive way. Like I was that kid who (laughs) my poor grandmother, my grandma like, come here, sugar plum. And I was like, I'm not sugar plum. I'm faith. Like I've always just been like a little bit, a lot. Um, but I think, um, you know, I, sometimes this is like, sometimes I'm all worried about sounding too like touchy feely hippie about things. But I'm like, no, like that's who I am, you know, but I've, I've thought so much more about like softness as the hard thing to, um, to maintain and and preserve, you know, like a, a softness for people and like, you know, looking, looking at the world and that kind of thing. So it's, I don't know. I, I think that toughness comes in so many different forms and, um, I think like things like being a really good mom are really tough and things like, 
I don't know. I just, I, I have so many different ways of, of thinking about toughness and like looking at different people in my life and like what it means to be tough. And I think um, I very often think about toughness much more in an emotional sense than I do in like a, a physical sense. Like, yeah. you know, it's much more like when I, when I say someone's tough, it's because of what they were able to pull themselves out of, um, from a, like a mental and emotional standpoint so much more, um, with the help of a community or on their own or through some kind of thing that they found inside much more than it is like being able to climb something or, you know, run something like I definitely, I mean, looking at the results of Western states and just like the process. And I think it, I mean, the, the people that are running these hundred mile races, I'm like, that is certainly tough. But I also think that like, you know, stopping at mile 40 because you are trying to preserve um, yourself, whether it's for another race or stopping at mile, you know, like 70, because you're on the ground, like unable to finish because you've given so much of yourself at that time and the conditions for the day weren't the right thing for you to finish. Like all of those things to me are like, being tough <laughs> so I think um yeah I, I think I'm always um grateful for if um someone uses you know that as a description for me and who I am but um it's definitely not it's not um like what moves me about about myself I guess who's someone in your life that you look to as I don't know a mentor or a model in this kind of toughness that you're describing man um I guess I would say hmm, maybe probably both my dad and my sister but um my sister um I don't think she would mind me saying this my sister's bipolar and um she's just been through so much so so much in her life and when I see her now, like, and even most recently, like something happened that was completely unrelated being bipolar, but she's worked, she works in retail and like things are just rough. Um, right now, if you work in, in retail as, and, you know, she was out of a job for something like seven or eight months. And even, you know, some days I would talk to her and when her <laughs> husband wasn't around, she'd be like, just in tears immediately, like trying to figure out how she can, you know, just like stay positive and all this stuff. And, but like, then, you know, she now has a job and she's like working and, but I just like her positive outlook. I think like, it would be so easy for her to be cynical about people, you know, about them as about like people's like core, like, are we good or not, you know, Mm -hmm. on that level or like, is, is, is the world trying to help you or not like that kind of thing. And she just somehow remains one of the most like giving, uplifting, always like down to like, and she's like the person that loves to like, she'll ask me in August, it's probably coming up. She's like, what are you doing December 17th? I'm doing my tree trimming. I'm just like, what? And she's like that person that's always trying to bring people together um, with any excuse. I mean, she'll take any excuse to have some kind of themed get together and anyone's always welcome. I mean, anyone is always welcome. Um, like in, in whatever apartment or home or whatever charity is, um, creating. And I just see her as someone that's really good at creating these community spaces. Um, in spite of the fact that 
Like she has every reason and has had throughout her life every reason to be like, I'm not getting up today. Um, so yeah, I think I gotta say, I gotta say charity, which she would be like shocked probably. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I I want to go back to something that you mentioned when you were talking about climbing Shasta and the idea of love as a motivator. And I love my team and I want to do this with my team. I have never really been on a team. I'm trying to think if that's accurate as I say that, you know, I never mm. did that kind of, you know, I, I came to running as an adult, sort of as an individual. I was never, you know, doing team sports. I've always sort of worked non-traditional jobs that mostly mean working at home alone, right? That that's something that I'm not that familiar with. And so I'm just sort of curious, maybe going back to, you know, running in college or like, what have your experiences been like, you know, with team culture, being part of a team? I think you were captain, right? Of the team at Yale? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anything that I don't know that you want to speak to about just sort of that, how that has shaped you, you know, being part of like strong teams. Definitely. I mean, my, my first running team, um, I was in the seventh grade when I started running track. Um, and that's also when I started swimming, um, for, uh, uh I guess for my, yeah, I was doing I can't even remember what back stands for, but I was doing like a club team um, as well. So I was doing a club swim team and then I was running track and and I ended up doing, I mean, track swimming and cross track and swimming while from seventh to ninth grade and then track and cross country. Um, yeah. From 10th grade uh, through college. I, and I, I went to a boarding school in the 10th grade. And so we were actually required to play sports each season. So I also somehow picked up, well, I wouldn't even say picked up because I was terrible at it, but I played basketball as well for two years um, on the level like below JV. (laughs) This is just amazing. Um, But yeah, teams, teams are hugely important to me. And then, and then after college, I kind of stopped running for a bit. And there's another friend of ours, um, Gabby, who ran at Yale as well, who was running with a team in London called Track Mafia. And I was chatting with her um, just about her like life. I didn't even know about this team. And she's like, yeah, I love London. And like, I'm really staying here really because of this running team. I was like, running team? What are you talking about, girl? We're washed up. Like, we don't run anymore. <laughs> and she was like, no, it's been incredible. Um, like, it's really just changed my life, and I love it. And um, there's a team like it in New York called Black Roses MIC. I think you'd really like them. And I was like, okay, whatever. And, um, you know, but then the next day, they happened to be having an open session, and Gabby tagged me. She's in London, so she saw it before me and tagged me, like, at 6 30 a.m. when I was about to leave for work so I was like okay I'll just like bring running sneakers to work and um so I ended up um, joining a team and I've been running also with Black Roses um MIC for two years and um I think throughout my life um yeah just back to love and motivation it's like some days it's been really hard for me being in Portland away from my team. It's probably been the hardest part about leaving New York. It's been very strange. I've actually been like shocked by my own, just like how much I'm missing my team because I, I travel a lot and I've, I've moved a lot and I, you know, I love the relationships I have with my friends because, and and thankfully with like phones and stuff like that, you can still kind of really be in touch. But, um, I don't think I've ever missed anything this much. And, um, you know, on some days now I'm like living alone. I don't have a team out here and I got injured. So, um, you know, my running isn't 
um, back to like confidence where your confidence comes from. Like I had such a hard run today because I was not, I'm not where I want to be. And it's been five months since I've been injured. And I was like, why am I still telling myself like, this isn't really a training run. Don't be worried about training run pace. Like you're still in recovery, but like, I'm still in recovery after five months and I get frustrated by that. But I know today that if I had had someone with me, I would have gotten more miles in. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have some days, like even I've been trying to get miles in this week because I'm on the road for the next two weeks and I'm in places where I probably won't be able to run. And, um, I have struggled so much to even like yesterday, I like spent two hours thinking about going on a run (laughs) and I didn't make it out on the run, you know, and when I'm with other people, um, I'm so excited to see them also that I, that I, um, don't really worry about it. And also on my team, like, um, you know, I think being on a team for me has always been a method of accountability, um, where, you know, if I don't go to practice, that person's not going to have me to do intervals with, and they're fine without me, you know, but I know that we feed off of each other in terms of like, that person is my training partner. And that's really huge. Um, and I think like, ideas about just like partnership and collaboration and like different kinds of personalities working together for a common goal. Like all of those things have really, um, I think carried over in like every aspect of my life. Like I'm always looking for a team. I'm always looking for a team, um, mentality and just the idea that everyone's trying to put in work. Like mm-hmm. that is super motivating to me. And on days where I, you know, show up to the track and I like, hear that we're about to do some crazy workout and I look around I'm just like oh my gosh and then someone's already just walking to the starting line like someone's just ready to get into it that's really motivating to me um and you know sometimes like I'll know you know that someone on my team's having a rough week and I'll know that like for whatever reason they probably didn't want to be there but they showed up and they're like ready to work and I think for that reason like I'm like well shoot who am I not to jump in with them on this interval you know so I think um, <laughs> it's almost self-serving where like my motivation to run, it's like, I don't even have to be motivated by myself. <laughs> I just like, look at one of my teammates. I'm like, all right, let's, let's do this thing. Um, yeah. So teams have always been, um, huge, huge to me. So when I was looking at the Black Roses NYC, they, I don't know if it's their motto or mantra or something, but I wanted to ask you about it because I saw, I think it was on their website that it just says, you only give everything. What is that? What's that about? This season. (laughs) I, oh my gosh. Um, I, I'm going to have to come back to it because, so it's this, it's this concept of, um, it's a Finnish concept. We have a girl that joined the team, um, Pilvi, who um, introduced this concept of Sisu and um, everyone really just caught on to it. But it, it's technically kind of about courage. It's about um, like not not a momentary courage, um, but but the way that um, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to translate. So our team translation for this season, and that's been actually during the time that I've been away, has been like, you only give everything. And um you know, the, the motto before that, these, these like season mantras kind of just like pop up. Um, someone says it and everyone catches on and I can't talk as much about CC season. <laughs> you only give everything. Cause I wasn't there. Um, this season I was, you know, um, out here, but the other one before that was all we got is all we got, which is a pretty similar, um, concept, um, to, we only give everything, but it's, um, 
you know, like, like I, I said about the team, sometimes I don't even have to motivate myself because I look to someone else, but that's very different in a race. And, um, you know, everyone that runs doesn't take racing seriously. And I think that that's totally fine. I like think that there's all these different ways to be running and all these different reasons to be running and, um, all these different groups that, you know, if you want to run with a group, there's all these different groups for people. Um, roses is definitely about racing and definitely about like running culture. And, um, you know, so for me, like race, and I guess coming, coming from like a, a background of always having been on, on teams racing, something that, you know, is really important to me. And I take it, I take it pretty seriously. And that's the kind of thing, like all, you only give everything, um, when you're in the middle of a race and, you know, you've got for, I mean, I've never done marathons still. My first one's coming up, um, this, this year, but, um, we we have a lot of marathoners on the team, but, um, for me, my, my, um, second half was last year. And I, I remember just like there's certain moments in the race where being able to say you only give everything, <laughs> is, is exactly what you need to push yourself through, you know, and, um, my, my personal thing I've always thought about in terms of track is, well, you're not going to die. Um, which I, I do mean like physically you are not going to die if you leave it all on the track. So you can push through, like you give it all, um, (laughs) just like a kind of strange way and like really intense, I feel like way of, looking at it, but I'm a sprinter also. So like, you know, there are moments in a, I mean, you can't really think of a 400, but like you, I mean, it's like, you have to give everything, um, you know, and that's about you. That's just about like what you can do. Um, and sometimes it's like, you know, your personal best is like a few seconds, you know, even on like a mile or something. I, I, I had four different mile long races last year and, um, two of them, I ran the exact, same time but one of them I was like dying I mean dying people were talking about my pain face for like weeks and the other one I was just like in love with running at that moment um but I think like the difference between those races for me was absolutely my mental state during them um yeah it's a funny (laughs) our mantras like really vary but I wasn't I wasn't there um this year during during CC season but um that is our um uh, translation of the the Finnish concept of Sisu. It's amazing. I'm I'm super into race mantras or just like the mental side of doing hard things. However, you define hard things. Mm-hmm. You know whether that's mental talk when a race gets hard. You mentioned your pain face. Like I, it's been an interesting thing. I started running when I was 26, so like coming to it after essentially a lifetime of inactivity. Like I had no experience of. I don't know, like welcoming pain or, you know, be it like I, I mean, I don't know that anyone loves pain. Maybe some people mm-hmm. do, but mm-hmm. I, I had no training in that. Like that wasn't a skill that I had. It was like, oh, this is slightly uncomfortable. Back off. Like, you know, the goal, uh, the cultural goal of just like being as comfortable as possible all the time. Like, I think that's really pervasive. So I don't know. I'm curious what that's like for you. I mean, I guess using a racing context, like how do you let yourself like go that deep into, you know, you mentioned like leaving it all on the track while I'm not going to die. Like what's, is it, is it like a self-talk thing? Like how do you not pull back when it gets hard? Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think sometimes like 
you know, sometimes I do pull back when it gets hard, you know, and sometimes I, and sometimes I don't. And I think, yeah, like I think when I'm the most proud of, of myself um, is when I don't pull back, you know, when it gets hard, as long as I'm being like smart, I think there's another conversation about like making smart decisions. So you're not breaking yourself, um, Mm -hmm. whether that's like physically or mentally, um, you know, during training, but, um, or during running. But I think, Hmm. I don't know. It's funny because when you said like, I'm not used to welcoming pain, I was kind of like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Like bring it on, you know, like from a running standpoint, I think like, um, I think, the physical, I don't know, there's something about that like physical feeling of doing something uncomfortable um, that does, once again, it just goes back to like where my confidence comes from. You know, my confidence has always been like some uh, combination of me as athlete and like me as a spiritual person. Um, But I definitely think that like, knowing that I can push myself um, is just, it's, it's huge. Like it's everything to me at certain moments and it carries over, you know, and I, I, it is self-talk. It's like, you can do this. I've done this before, you know, and I do get to the point where even though I'm having trouble getting myself up for like 10 miles right now, I know I can do it um, versus like, you know, I started doing more distance running three ish years ago and I mean I'd never done more than like I think if I had to do a mile in um college I'd come back and like just not be on speaking terms with my coach for the rest of the practice like I did not do anything over for um so you know the process of moving up into the fact where I'm like going to go on a 15 mile run with teammates on the weekend um has been huge and it's meant a lot to me in terms of um, just building confidence um, in my abilities to do things. And, you know, I had this awesome coach in high school um, who would not let me quit cross country, despite the many ways that I tried to quit. <laughs> and he'd always somehow convince me, Dr. Kirby, um, that it was good for me because not just because of the running, but because of what it taught me about the rest of my life and that it would carry over in terms of my ability to push through in terms of my ability to be dedicated to something in terms of my ability to like, yeah, like you said, like do hard things. Um, my mental strength, like my character as a person, like I've always been told that, um, running is a part of building all of that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think you're right. I can relate a lot to what you were saying about, you know, that, about running being source of confidence, like a a well from which, you know, confidence comes, which makes me want to ask, you know, you mentioned coming back from injury when your confidence and sort of maybe even identity like comes so much from, let's say a physical ability or something like running, what's been your process of, you know, coping methods or just like advice for dealing with injuries? What's that been like? Oh man. (laughs) That's a hard one. I mean, I was so devastated um, when I got hurt earlier this year. And um, I got hurt going into a race. It's our it's our second episode for Director of Toughness, our Argentina episode. And we was running um, El Cruce de Colombia. It's a um, three-day stage race. It's 100K, so um, just over 60 miles. And 
I got injured training for it. And so going into it, I like literally couldn't run. I was like hobbling going into the race. And, um, it was, it was such a fascinating experience on a mental level because like after day one, I, I mean, I like bawled (laughs) and I called my coach bawling and I called my dad bawling back in the States and my dad, um, just said the best thing. And he goes, um, you know, I used to laugh at you and Charity. Charity's my older sister. We've we've always done well in track. And he's like, I used to laugh when you'd come home upset about like a fourth instead of a second or a third instead of a first or second in section nine versus something else. And um, he he would always remind us of then. And, and he did again just this year. Now I'm 28 instead of 14. Um, you know, he's like, there are people that never made the relay team. There are people that never made it to states. You know, there are people that in other sports essentially like sit the bench, but they come out there and they cheer and they're there every day and they practice every day and they're cheering for you like it's their race. Like you need to go out and figure out what motivates those people. And it was so humbling. And also, of course, I'm just like in tears again because I was like, you're right. Like, you know, like what, what, how do I, how do I run you know, and once again, that was another moment where like, I didn't want to finish the race. I didn't want to do it because I was like, I can't do this well. I'm injured. So why am I doing a thing that I know I can't quote unquote succeed at? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, and later on in, in the day, I still, I must've been like tear stained walking to my tent <laughs> for the night. And there was a guy two tents over from me. He was in tent 308 and he was like, I gave this rutarla, which means like you need to enjoy it. Um, and he was injured and he had already signed up. So he was here and he was like, I'm just out there. I'm talking to people on the trail. I'm enjoying it. I'm whatever. And I like totally took that mentality for the next day. And like, there were literally people who went by me, like, I mean, like old dudes being like, bring me more, bring me more. Like, there were people that heard me crying, like as they passed me. There were people that, like, when I was looking at my time from stage one, like saw me at the board and were like, "Oh, like in Spanish, like you were the one that was limping, like doing like a little limp." So, like a gesture in case my Spanish wasn't good and I couldn't understand. And I was like so mortified, like because and, and what I said to my dad, which was like, "What kind of prompted this whole thing?" I was like, "People don't even know I'm a good runner." Hmm. Like it was totally ego. like this yeah. ego. It's totally this ego thing. And like, I had to think about that race from a completely different angle. Um, and I think, you know, I, I came back and I, I did finish the race and it was so strange. I was able to run on the third day, not like my best pace at all, but I could actually like put weight on my knee, which hadn't happened on the first two days. I just felt like it was like such a gift from the universe to like remind me like that I was, you know, that I was okay. And that this was like a temporary thing. And then I got to like, enjoy that just like joy of running of like running down a hill and like whatever. Um, but I got back and I took off a full month and I went out to do five miles on grass and I was in so much pain and I limped the next day and I was like, okay, can't do that. And I took off another full month and I started going to PT and I kind of found out what was going on. Like my patellas were tracking incorrectly. I had just like overtrained in a way that um, had allowed my um, patellas to kind of start slipping out of the groove in my kneecap that they're supposed to stay in. And so my kneecaps were compounding on the bone and um, eroding 
some of the cartilage and it was just like super painful. So I've been in PT, um, trying to activate my glutes and all of my other muscles so that my kneecaps will stay where they're supposed to. <laughs> um, but I mean, there are the, the question of like coming back from recovery and dealing with injury. I have no idea. I have no idea. I think, um, it's, it's hard for different people, but I think, I think that there's something really wonderful about when your body's able to do something like whatever that small thing is, I find such joy from being like, look what you did body, (laughs) you know, like that Mm -hmm. to me is really wonderful, but also like, you know, not running as much. I've had time to try different things. I've been climbing a lot and, um, you know, I needed to do glute, um, work. And so I like went to bar and I cannot tell you, like, I will tell, I like, I admit I was judging people who do bar like so hard beforehand. I walked by, so they're like, what is bar? Like this ballet, what is this? And I got my butt whooped. I mean, like I was burning and dying in this bar, bar class. And like, started doing yoga. Um, so just like trying to do different things and finding something wonderful and new about all of them. I, I really like climbing and being in the gym because it's this whole different like mental stimulation of thinking about like how to um, complete a problem on, on the wall. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's just sort of, uh, for me, I've just been like, okay, what else can you do then? What mm-hmm. else can you do? Because you can't run right now. Um, and just having to be okay with that. And knowing, for me, knowing, like, inshallah, I will always be a runner. Um, and so, like, I can come back to it, you know. And if there's a part, point in, in my t- life where it doesn't make me happy and I don't want to do it, you know, I won't do it for a few years. And then I can come back to it. Um, so I think just, like, I don't know. I think just, like, part of, <laughs> once again, back to my dad, who's, like, my guru. Um, I think he says something. I don't know where he got it, but he's, like, you want to get to the point where you can say yes to things you want to say yes to and no to the things that you want to say no to. And I think just in general, like being able to be humble and patient and honest with yourself and your abilities and what you need to do is like, like that, that goes back to the toughness thing. Like that's what matters, you know? So being like, okay, I can't run right now. If I make myself miserable by being all sad about the fact that I can't run, like nobody wins. So figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the ability to hold like almost contradictory truths inside of, you know, I love running. That's what I really want to do. I'm, you know, super bummed that I'm injured. I'm going to work to get back to it. Like that's true. And also it's not the end of the world. And there's these other things, right? It's not like, oh, well then in that case, I'm going to give up running and then, you know, expand the definition of success to be other things and not run. It's like being able to have this like I don't know, this messiness, right? Like one thing can be true and you can be bummed about it and have being injured can be devastating. And also there's other things. Totally, totally, yeah. absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, um, the footer of your website says the art of representation. What does that mean? What's that about? Yeah, man, my, my muses, <laughs> my like life muses are um, these these tailors um, who are this group called Art Comes First. And um, they're just incredible. So the, 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 there's these two guys, um, Sam Lambert and Shaka Maido. And um, they're tailors. They're based out of, of London, but they are um, of African 
and um, Ostinian descent. I think Shaka's half Jamaican. Not totally sure, but um, sorry, Shaka. Um, <laughs> they when I first saw them, I was just like, "Who are these guys?" And first of all, they just look amazing. They dress amazing. I I love menswear like it's, it's this weird thing that I love I love like silhouettes and suits and I, I guess that's gotta come from you know my dad um but they were um so Oswald Boateng was like the first um black tailor on Salvo Row in London um and Sam worked with him and just seeing how these guys so they're a rotating collective of um tailors and, you know, there's this one guy um, who has super duper hats out of um, Italy. There's another guy, God, what's Liam's last name? I, I forget where they're based, but they're, oh, it makes me sad. I haven't seen them in a, in a while, but they're all kind of based in different places and they do different things, but they, they come together. Like when they're in Brooklyn, they're with um, um, the Brooklyn Circus. And there's just these, it's all these like super creative guys that, um, work together and their thing is art comes first. And I think watching them work together and watching them like create community, like real community in this world that's not even really about that. Like I would go to trade shows um, for menswear in New York or in Florence. Like I, I love this stuff and I'd walk in and, you know, everyone's got their own like setup and their own you know, designs and you see like where the stitching is still on this suit or that thing. And you start walking like to the back and then there's like these huge blown up photos on the wall and somebody's on a mini skateboard, like Sam's like skating around and people are laughing and you're just like drawn to that space. And you're like, what is this about? Like, they're just like totally different from everyone else. And they're just being completely themselves. And I loved their um, model of a collective. Um, once again, I guess I'm always looking at like a team. Um, so I was really inspired by them. Um, and just like the art of what are they, they say something about the art of something. I can't remember right now, but I was super inspired by them. Um, and I, I've been like following their work. I mean, for the past like six, seven years. Um, and I think about them all the time and like the way that they work um, and just like kind of being yourself in the space. But I, I also like my background is in media and representation. And I think a lot about like whose stories are told, how they're told, um, who's being seen. And, you know, one of the kind of examples that I've come to of, of how to talk about this is just like, you know, on television or in movies, if there's like two stories about two moms and people are seeing that, then like you've got two examples of motherhood and like two ways that mothers can be. But then like the more different stories about mothers that there are, like if you go from two to 12, there's all these different models of like what motherhood means and, and how you have to be as a mother. And I think that like seeing different people's stories can let you feel more empowered. Like what if mother one and mother two don't really like you know, resonate with you, but mother 11, like that's who you feel like you are, you know? So, so I've always felt like the more stories that exist, um, the more likely that people can like, cause stories I think are like how we communicate, you know, it's, it's how we've always communicated as a culture. It's how like people's histories have been passed down. It's all through stories. Um, and so I think for me as someone who is wanting to 
either tell stories myself or help other people share stories or whatever it is, um, like working with filmmakers and filmmaker support, I was always so excited to be able to like help projects come together in any small way. Um, and so, you know, for me and I'll, you know, and I'll say I've had times of frustration. I was at USC for grad school for a year before I um, took some time off and then switched to NYU. And I had this one really frustrating experience of, um, I was telling this story about a young girl who's biracial, but doesn't necessarily look at who, um, you know, someone else sees her black father and kind of calls her out on it. And she's doesn't really know how to respond to that and ends up with her and her friend kind of being like, well, you know, maybe it was her uncle, maybe it was her babysitter. Yeah. Maybe it was her babysitter, you know? And, um, I'm writing this story and I'm going through workshopping with it. And this is a story from my childhood. You know, it's something that happened in my own family. And I had professors being like, that doesn't really seem like maybe we should put it in a different time zone. We don't really think it's like accurate for, you know, a contemporary. Like, when did this happen? Like this wouldn't have happened in 2011. I was just like, oh my God, like you're so unable to see my lived experience that you really don't think that this story should be told. And that was really like frustrating for me because it's like, so, so that's how I walk around and I don't see stories about me. You know, I don't see stories about, um, you know, and it's getting better and better, but I, I also, I'm working on some children's stories because I want, like, I want a kid to be able to read a book and have someone be eating a mango in that book. You know, mm-hmm. just the smallest thing. I want someone to be reading a book and someone said something in Spanish in that book. And I think that like, it's really, it's really important to be able to see yourself reflected in media. And I think I, I came to that because I realized working at summer camps, just how much, media kids were soaking in um and for me like reading you know I was an African American studies major and a film studies major in college and I took a lot of um courses where I got to read these incredible black female thinkers and I know that like that kind of reading so impacted like who I am and who I'm like feel like I'm allowed to be you know I felt super empowered by reading all this stuff from women who were just like talking about like being exactly who I am. And, and so, um, but I knew that that kind of stuff wasn't what you were going to get from like watching a music video. And so I wanted to figure out it's what moved me into media. Like how, how do I bring all of these ideas together in, in media? Like how do we just like really broaden the spectrum of the kind of things that we're talking about? And so that's always been, um, a motivator for me. And so I think when people are like, what's your work about? I have so much trouble. Like, like, like you said, the podcast isn't subject specific. Like I'm not always, you know, telling stories about cycling or I'm not always doing weddings or I'm not specifically like, you know, a nature, um, documentary storyteller. But I think that the core thing that always motivates me about a story is that there's some kind of aspect of, um, representation um in that and like I I always want to show people um that other people might not believe exist and not not in that they like wouldn't believe that they saw them but they don't think about them like they're not they're not the people that you think about first then you're like wait what like you know I've been working for years on this in this doc and I'm hoping to get back to it right now about these um Ghanaian kids doing an agricultural radio competition in the eastern region of Ghana and like you see these kids and you just you wouldn't you like I just feel like 
it's really important to see these kids like laughing in the back of a chocho on their way to school, but also like talking about uh, the effects of climate change on like the mangoes in their town. You know, just uh, that that story I want because I want people to know that those kids exist. Yeah. Do you have a strong memory of uh, not necessarily the first time, but maybe one of the first times that you felt really represented by something in media? Um, well, I, for me, luckily, it goes so far back. Um, and, I'll, and because my parents actually, so because of this experience with my sister, um, my parents were kind of like shocked that same story I told is my sister's story. Um, and I did a short film about it. I didn't during the film. So she's happy to let me talk about it. <laughs> um, but um, because of that, my parents kind of realized how quickly and how early they needed to be talking about race um, in our household. And they really kind of didn't um, think they were going to have to need to do that so early. And so my parents had a lot of books for us about um uh, biracial kids, actually. And one of them is this book called Black is Brown is Tan. Um, and it was just always one of my favorite books. It's by this guy, Arnold Adolf, and it's a poem. Um, but it's, I, I won't, I won't be able to remember it right now, but, um, it just, it showed this, um, diverse family and it talked about, um, skin color, um, in a way that a kid can understand. It was like, you know, you had the funny uncle in the kitchen and you had like, you know, the grandmother and you had all of these different family members, um, that looked differently who were all represented as like having fun with the kids. And that was their family. And I think that was, um, always really important to me because I, I do, I mean, we lived in South Carolina for a, a while when I was younger, I got made fun of for being mixed. I got like, I couldn't get on the slide without getting made fun of by kids. I, you know, have had things said to me, have had things said to my parents um, while I was out with them when I was younger that I didn't understand. I've had all kinds of people, um, both black and white, um, you know, say things about me when I've been in um, uh, interracial dating relationships. And, um, you know, my family is all good now, but when my parents got married, my mom's side disowned my mom for marrying my dad. So, um, you know, I'm very aware that we still have a lot of um, issues of prejudice in our country that we, you know, have to do a lot of work on. And I think that stories um, are a really good way of, of doing that work. Yeah, I mean, what you said before about just listening to each other's lived experiences and not trying to, as you know, that person at USC did, well, this doesn't really seem realistic. Okay, well, it's not your lived experience, just because it has something doesn't have to happen to you in order to be true for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You said something um, when we were emailing earlier in the week, um, just, you know, about things to talk about on the show. And you, and you mentioned that about being biracial. And you said, I've often navigated majority white spaces. And this has had a huge impact on my life. I'd love for you to go into detail a little bit about that. Tell me more. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've lived in primarily black towns and the, the, um, camps that I went to were always inner city kids. So it was primarily like black and Latino, but I've also lived in a lot of, um, majority white towns. And I think, um, really the, the, the first, <laughs> the first experience was I went to Hotchkiss, um, in, which is a little uh, preparatory boarding school in, in um, Connecticut. And I always tell people it was like probably the most important decision I made in my life, like beyond, um, beyond the 
decision to, you know, go to Yale. Like everyone thinks like, oh, your college decision is the most important. Like, no, going to boarding school was incredible. It changed my life. It was also crazy. And I ended up going there based on the fact that my parents moved all the time. And I was really tired of being the new kid because I was always the new kid. And I found that we were moving again between my ninth and 10th grade year. And I started just like Googling boarding schools because I now knew that this was a thing that existed. And I didn't know what to look for. I literally was just like boarding school, not too far away, has a track team. Those are my (laughs) top priorities. And I wanted it to be co-ed. So I looked up boarding schools in New England. I ended up at Hotchkiss. And Hotchkiss does a really good job, I I do think, at like um, trying to bring a diverse group of students together, um, ethnically, um, socioeconomic background, like all of these things. Um, But I do think that at the time that I was there, they had trouble knowing how to support those kids once they were there. Mm. And I also, I mean, I didn't realize even until after college, after going to Ghana and visiting some of the high schools there as part of the project I was working on, it really made me think so much about some of my friends um, who were students with me at Yale. And I was like, talk about culture shock. I mean, I didn't even like, I couldn't even have imagined, I couldn't even have imagined what it would have been like. And I always think about food because food is such a like comfortable thing, but like being yeah, like coming to somewhere where like, if you say you want fufu, everyone's going to look at you like you're an absolute crazy person because no one knows what that is. But that's like what you've eaten for dinner, like twice a week, every day of your life. Like, it's just like a weird thing to have, like everything that you know and are comfortable with be taken away from you, um, you know, and, and, you know, taken away or, or having to leave it in, in order to try to like do a better opportunity. Um, but So I got to Hotchkiss and I mean, there were a lot of firsts Um, (laughs) and, you know, I, gosh, just like everything, not that I was the first person to ever have like an interracial relationship, but when I, I was the only person like in an interracial relationship when I was um, dating my, my high school boyfriend, I was a senior, I was the first um, black female president of the Hotchkiss school. Um, I was a co-president with my amazing friend Misha my senior year of um high school um but you know there were things there were things that I sometimes flippantly call rich kid problems but um it's obviously much more complicated and nuanced than that but you know I was exposed to just kids that had to contend with completely different things than I did and it it really kind of showed me like I'll never forget I had a friend just like crying in my room um, about like her parents, you know, basically saying like she was that her, that she was fat and that she was embarrassing the family. Um, And like that, that, that wasn't like who they were. Um, And it it broke my heart. Um, But it also was so foreign to me. You know, I got there and like, I didn't know the brands that other people were wearing. I didn't know, you know, I started getting these terrible grades and I was like, what is this? Like I've always been a straight A student. I was just like shocked. Actually the first person that ever talked me about fly fishing was my English teacher, Dee White, um, who was just like, called me the comma spice queen. I think at one point, like I just like everything about that place was so different um, for me. And I'm trying right now to think of my friend Finch, other than Finch and me, 
I don't know if there were any other biracial kids there um, at different at, at some points in my year. I think it was just us, and I'm I'm trying to think of who else, but. You know, so it was really different, but I, I, I would call that historically white space. And I would call Yale a historically white space. Sure. And I mean, yeah. you know, I think that learning how to be in a space where the culture was, and, and often from an economic standpoint, like so foreign to me, like I didn't even know the brands to feel like I didn't have them. You know, like I didn't even know, like I was so beyond like, the levels of richness that I was around in some places because like these people's families were doctors and these people's families were bankers and these people's families were politicians and these people had like the buildings named after them. And I just like was so not a part of that world that in many ways, I think it was like, I was able to just like blaze my own trail, but it was very, very, very difficult for other, um, for friends of mine who were, um, I think of my year, if there were like 25 black and Latino kids, three of us weren't from a preparatory program that specialized in bringing kids from the city into um, private schools, whether they be local schools or boarding schools. And um, my parents basically told me, like, you are learning a culture. That is what you're doing there. You're learning how people handshake differently than you. You're learning how people have conversations. Like, these are the kids that some of these kids no. And some of my amazing, great friends who I love, you know, but knew that coming out of high school, they would go to college and coming out of college, they would have a job, whether it was like a family job or whatever. Like it was never a, the question. And it's something that my dad has called the nonchalance of wealth, just like, you know, being able to have a fallback plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something that I think prepared me for learning how to be in that space and knowing that you know, like I did have friends. I, I had friends in high school and this is the thing that drives me crazy. Is like one of my good, good friends who's just like so gorgeous and always was like need to be a model was told by someone, I can't date you because you're black, you know? So like it, it's not, and, and like that was, you know, at Hotchkiss. So it was just like really um, spaces that weren't used to me and spaces that I wasn't used to, but I, I always, I've always found that to be an incredibly wonderful um challenge and um you know back to <laughs> back to podcasts on there's um on, on being there's an artist Titus Kafar who's actually based out of New Haven who I met um my senior year and who invited me to come to his studio and looked at my work and gave me advice and who's just like the most amazing and giving person but he talks about um his feeling of responsibility um or maybe it doesn't have the words you use, but he, he says like, I do sit down with people who I know don't like me to have conversations. And I think that, um, I've, I've wondered a lot, especially recently about what my responsibility is. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot and read a lot with, um, activists, um, saying it's not my job to educate you. It's not my job to educate you. Um, go figure, like, go do the work, go blah, blah. blah. And in many ways, I absolutely agree with that. But I also think that for me, I'm like, I am super privileged by the education that I've had, by the words that I've learned, like the language that I've, you know, been exposed to and able to talk about some in order to talk about some of this really difficult stuff. And so in that sense, I kind of do feel like it's my responsibility to have difficult conversations. Um, And, you know, even though sometimes I'm really tired and I don't want to, 
um, I still, you know, try to make myself because I, I've found, you know, through whether it was like someone messaging me on Facebook from high school being like, hey, I don't have anyone to talk to about this. I'm wondering, like, is this okay? Or is this thing that I'm thinking about? And I've so valued those conversations because, you know, I've wanted to um, be able to create a space where people feel comfortable asking questions. It's not, I don't excuse ignorance, you know, um, but I definitely think that like, it's, it's really great to be able to talk about different things. So I guess in terms of, in terms of navigating um, historically white spaces, I think I've, I've had a lot of learning and I've been able to, I don't know, just feel comfortable wherever I am in, in some ways, even though it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and back to what your parents were saying, the idea of going somewhere to learn a culture, it's, I would have never thought of it that way, but it's, that definitely makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. That, that helped a lot. That helped a lot. I mean, even being in Portland, like I, I'm very aware of being looked at. Um, and I'm not used to that coming from, I've been in Brooklyn for the past six years and I walked down the street. I live in Crown Heights. It's a historically West Indian neighborhood. Like everybody's got dress, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, um, and so uh, well, I remember yeah. when Kim, when Kate introduced us by text, and then you texted me back, and you were like, "I have dreads, and I'm wearing a stay woke hat. Like you'll find me <laughs> at this small <laughs> track meet outside of Portland." I was like, "Yeah, I probably will." <laughs> I was like, "I'm the only one." <laughs> it was amazing. I was like, "Yes, okay." <laughs> um, so going back to representation um, for a second, a, a good place to sort of wrap up. When you think about stories that you would love to see told or things you're curious about other people's lived experiences like who would you love to see more represented it's so easy for me to say native americans like i just i i'm working now on a documentary about um uh native american cultural appropriation and fashion um but in that i've just met so many um incredible people, um, from all different tribes. Um, and I mean, like, I remember just, I feel like, I feel like, um, one of the things about like, um, how to say like being black in America, I feel like sometimes you're deal, you're contending with stereotypes and you know that you kind of have to, um, out, uh, disprove them. Um, and so that is something that I feel like is like a shared burden of like always like, I forget the exact word, but like, um, just like even there's this whole thing that's like, if you have to identify your race before a standardized test, you'll statistically do a little bit worse. Like I read that somewhere and I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. So like just walking in and having to walk around thinking that people are thinking a specific thing about you based on the way that you look. And that's definitely something that happens um, because of race, but it happens because of other things too. It's, it's something that I think everyone contends with. Um, But I was talking to a friend and I was like, um, who's Navajo? And they were like, first I have to explain to people that I exist. And then I get to start disproving stereotypes about, uh, you know, where I come from, what the history of alcoholism is in my family, what I eat, how I sleep, what my house looks like, blah, 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 like all of this stuff. But it's like, but first I have to explain to them that I exist, that everybody didn't get killed off. And I was just like, 
mind blown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I'm always like, I just, I think that stories that come from our um, indigenous peoples are so, 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 so important. Um, but then the other thing that drives me insane, <laughs> and this is now going to another place, is like contemporary stories about African-Americans. Like, I don't, you know, like I'm super, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy that all of these films exist, but I'm so, I think I'm also so, um, I get, I get, obviously I'm animated to get animated and I get upset because I'm like, why is it that everything has to be about the past when it comes to African-Americans? Like everything's like in slavery or it's about civil rights. Like what about these, you know, like, and, and thankfully, um, you know, things like, and I haven't seen get out yet, but like, I know I need to, but like, you know, what about the stories that happen right now and aren't, and blackness is not the plot. You know, it's not like this black family at a wedding or like this black family at a reunion. It's like, no, it just like happens because I don't walk around every day and like everything I do is like funny because I'm black. Like, no, I just like, you know, I get up and I go running and come back and I whatever else. And like, I want I want those stories. I want to just like see, uh, you know, black family, you know, dealing with a funny kid who's going to kindergarten and is always like having problems in, in, in kindergarten and like, or whatever, you know, like, I just want, like, I want normal stories about like, you know, like I want like someone to get divorced. I want like sweet home Alabama. And like one of the characters happens to be black. I just like, it drives me insane that it's always like, set in the past and therefore it's like more believable Mm -hmm. or or that it's about that like it's about race or it's about you know sexual orientation things like as opposed to just being i get what you're saying like a story that by any other means would be just like a regular life story right and yeah 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 there's a poem and i'm gonna i'll find it and send it to you but there's like a poem that a guy um talks about i want to see this movie and it's like it's a poem about a um dinosaur film with black people in it and it's like it's just it's like it's like jurassic park you know it's like an apocalypse film and like there happen to be black people but like it's not about that you know it's, it's like there's a scene with a little kid playing with a t-rex on the bus like that's the kind of stuff i want to see you know yeah. it's it's not tragic it's not it's just like because that happens like little black kids play with t-rexes on the bus mm-hmm. and like you never see it you know you never see it and that kind of goes back to what I was talking about before. Like I want my life in all of its normality, (laughs) you know, to be. Right. To not only have stories told when they're like dramatic or historically relevant or about civil rights or yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Well, that's a good place I think to start to wrap up. Um, the way that we end these is with a series of what we call community questions. So it's just some random fun questions that the Patreon community, the awesome folks who fund the podcast want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. If you're down to answer nine questions. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first one is about routines and with so much focus on morning routines, can you share what your evening usually looks like? Mm, gosh, it's so funny because right now routine is so difficult for me. For me right, I'm, you're just like in the Yukon, you're going all, trekking. All, yeah. yeah, all over the place. But for me, a really good um, routine would be come back home. Uh, if I haven't worked out already, I'll probably run, come back, probably not even shower before I start cooking. I love cooking. So I'll cook some kind of 
dinner um and then i'll probably do more work <laughs> i am um, i you know i have so many projects going on at, at the same time that i um i'll probably work on uh, the book i'm trying to work on some illustrations or i get on the phone for a good hour and a half with one of my friends back in new york and um facetime um and that's been awesome that's a new part of my routine now that i live in portland what do you most want to be known for Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> no pressure, right? <laughs> like, right? Like, Define your entire life. Go. Life. <laughs> um, 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 conversations, I guess. Hmm. Um, having conversations. And I don't know. I, I, I guess I want to be known for making people feel seen. You know, if everyone, if, if I can be the kind of person that, um, I guess this is long, but. I lost a friend um, when I was younger and I was like 16 and he was one of the most popular kids in the school. And um, so many people who were like not popular were like, Javi, you know, he always said hi to me. He always stood up for me. He always blah, blah, blah. Like I, I, and, and what I feel like now in my adult language is like he made people, every kind of person feel seen and valued. So if I can do that, that would be huge. Oh, that's beautiful. What's the last thing that made you feel totally awestruck? A moment that stopped you in your tracks, left you at a loss for words, but in a great way. Um, I was out at the um, Quinault Peninsula recently. Oh, no, sorry. I was out at the Olympic Peninsula on the Quinault River recently with um, an incredible um, Quinault guide named Ashley Lewis. And we were fly fishing and she brought her mentor, Richie, with me. And I, when we first got up to this river, it's so big and it's so blue and wide. And like from a fly fishing point, you can just cast and not worry about like hitting trees and whatever. And just like I know there was something, I was standing in the river and I was fishing. I looked up and the three people with, I was with, we were all like lined, you know, separately a bit by bit by bit up the stream. And it was just, it was so beautiful. And I was really, um, I don't know, I was really overwhelmed in that, in that moment by looking at just like the beauty of the river and just like these three folks just all out there, just like doing their, doing their thing. Yeah. If you were given a huge amount or an unlimited amount of money to try and fix one problem in the world, what problem would you choose and what's one thing you would do? That's crazy. I know. Um, When this question got submitted, I was like, yup, going to take that one. That one's good. World peace. Yeah. Um, I, oh, there's so many problems in the world and I feel like no matter what, I, I think for me right now. I would, I would say, um, I would work on student, student loan debt in our country. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> just talk about that for a while, but that I think is, um, I'd work on student loan debt in our country. I'd work on forgive forgiveness, obviously. And I think I would work on, um, trying to better inform people about, the kind of um, debt that they were taking on, but more ideally make it so that we didn't have to take on so much debt. I think it's something that's really crippling for um, this generation. I could not agree more. Well, I hope you have the chance to do that because that sounds like a problem that needs to be solved. (laughs) Yeah. What's one of the best gifts you've ever received? Oh man, you know, letters. Oh, I like that. This, yeah, just amazing. I have some amazing friends that write um, handwritten letters, and like, there's nothing like it. I, it makes me. I'm, I'm like, I'm so bad at it. I actually have written 
like t- at least a dozen postcards while I've been on the road, like literally like by the campfire or blah, blah, blah. And I can see them from where I am. They're sitting <laughs> there. Cause I've been like, I'll send them from some cool, like, and then when I'm traveling, I can never like find a post office. So I've, I haven't sent out any of these postcards and I like do, but I think that like handwritten letters are the most incredible thing. And I like always, I've been trying now. I've been like, I'm like hitting the table, <laughs> but I've been, I've been trying now to get better at like sending snail mail um and i use postcards so it's like it doesn't have to be an intense thing it doesn't have to be pages and pages but um i have um a couple of friends one's my my friend shane who just writes incredible letters and it's it's really wonderful what's one habit that you've been successful at adopting over the past few years that you feel proud of Ooh. Hmm. um <laughs> I like that giggle. Whatever's coming after this giggle is going to be good. <laughs> well, I was going to, I mean, I was going to, I was like running, eating, like being everything. Um, I, this isn't even the past couple of years. I mean, this is just this year now I, I've been writing down um, things like this morning when I came back from my run, I was so, I was so upset. Um, and I was just like, I was upset, but I was also just like, Ugh, whatever. Like I had all these feelings and I was, sitting on the ground and I'd like attempted to make this chia pudding stuff and it was just like tasting awful. And so I was like, well, that didn't work. And I looked up and I have, um, written on the wall. I have this calendar that I made that's huge. And I write down like, um, if I've done PT exercises, what kind of, um, miles I got in or what kind of active thing I've done. Well, um, my spending, um, cause I'm trying to work on being more financially responsible. Um, and I have notes, but at the bottom it just says mind, body, spirit, discipline, recovery, health. And seeing it um, kind of made me be like, you're still doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I think I've gotten better at um, giving myself visual cues um, in the past few years. That's been, and that's been really, really helpful for me. That's awesome. I love that idea. What's one of your biggest fears? <sighs> Hmm. Biggest fears. Oh, failure. Totally. Yeah. Um, I think one of my biggest fears and I was just, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I do have these unfinished projects and they're projects where I was like the everything. I was the director, the producer, the cinematographer, the writer, the, you know, everything. And, um, I'm, I've got things that I've edited and I got a 53 minute cut and I moved around and moved around and moved around. I, and I guess right now, um, my friend was telling me like, we need to finish projects so that we are holding ourselves accountable, but that so that we trust ourselves as creatives. And I was like, yes, that's so true. So I think one of my biggest fears um, right now is that I'm not a person who completes things that I start. And um, that's like a terrifying thing. So it's something I'm working on right now is like really pushing through. And that's why with my evening routine, I'm like, I do come home and I try to put in, you know, at least another hour maybe into um, a project that I'm working on because I want to be, um, a person who finishes, finishes things. I can't tell you how much I relate to that. We could have another two hour conversation just about that. So I'm just going to let that go. Um, the next question is about books, which book or a couple books of any genre, any type of book, would you say have had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Ooh, gosh. Well, I'm, I just was, um, recommended to a friend and now I think I need to reread, um, letters to a young poet. 
um, by Raina Marie Wilkie, uh, Rilke. That's a really important book to me. And um, there's so many things from that that I go back to a lot. And it's one that my dad and I read together, um, or we'd send po- we'd send letters from um, Letters for Young Poet back and forth while I was in high school. And um, it was hugely important to me. Um, that's one. Um, right now I'm reading this book um, by Carolyn Finney called um, Black Faces, White Spaces, um, which uh, is about um, diversity in the outdoors and in the role that I find myself in. I've been really interested in um, being really informed about um, the history and the present and all the different ways of talking about it. So I really love that book. Um, and then I guess back to the question, like feeling represented. Um, I, I, I'm sure she'll never hear this, but I'm so, I'm like, I'm like, if it, if you have like, um, like fa- I fangirl so hard, I guess that's the best word about Zadie Smith. I have, <laughs> a quote, um, time is how you spend your love <laughs> tattooed on my arm from her book. Like I am so, I'm just all about, um, Zadie Smith and that book on beauty, which is where the quote comes from is, um, one of my favorite books. And I always like, I'm always rereading it. And, um, and the other one that's the last one I promise is this little book called the life and times of Susie Knuckles. Um, it's a poetry book. It's by Safia El Hilo. It's unfortunately out of print. But Safia is awesome. I found out because I was so like this book like helped me so much through this rough breakup, and I just like oh, it's everything. <laughs> um, I read it all the time, and I send it to people all the time, and I'm I can see it from right here. It's there's there's a stack of books on my um, bedside table, and then there's one book off to the side, closer to the bed, and it's Safia El Hilo, um, The Life and Times of Susie Knuckles, and it's it's so good, and it's also just written by this young woman um, who, when I read it, I was like, how do you know? How do you know my life? So <laughs> those those are the kind of books that yeah, I definitely saw myself in, but those are um, great books. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Oh, man, that's a good one. Um, Call to action. I think, well, I'm thinking of two. I'm like, A, read something by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. That's, That's one. But I think just in general, like, asking questions, you know, and not being afraid to ask questions. And I think sometimes like if you get, if you get some negative answer from some person or they don't want to answer your question, like fine, that's on them. But I do think that like, if we didn't bite our tongue when we had questions about things, um, we could be so much better at like addressing and, 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 and talking and that kind of thing. So I would say, ask yeah. Ask me. You can ask me if you want. I might not have the answer, but I'm, I'm always down to, to talk. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Probably Instagram. And I know my friends are probably like, you didn't respond to my text. I have like <laughs> I have two phones and I have like multiple um, numbers. And when I'm traveling, I often like will just ignore one for days. Um, and same thing with my, my, my emails. I have different emails. Um, so Definitely. Instagram is probably the best way. I'm Faith Eve B on um, 
Instagram and I'm on it a lot. I love it. <laughs> I won't lie. Um, but you know, every method I'm on Twitter, Facebook, um, all of that. And I'm faithy across platforms. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. This was so much fun. Thank you. So fun. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Jess. Hi, Jess. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions so that I can start to get to know things about you. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm ready. Tell me how you usually spend the first hour of your day. Um, well, typically I will, um, kind of check my phone first. Um, Instagram, I look at a lot. Um, and then I will kind of get up and usually, um, kind of get some water and, um, have a little, like a little, um, like energy bar or something like that. And then usually I'll run, um, in the morning within the first hour. Um, usually like five days a week. That's what my morning is like. Nice. I like it. Yeah, I'm a morning runner, too, when I am running. <laughs> yeah, if I don't do it in the morning, it's um, it's a big challenge for me to go after working all day. So Yeah, I feel the same way. For me, it's less a timing issue, although it is that, too. It's more like my stomach's really sensitive, and I find mm-hmm. like I can eat very little before running. And if I've you know had a whole day of like eating and be a, being a person in the world, it just does not work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm definitely the same way. And it's, it's funny, because if I like some days when I will have to run after work, I'm very like, very thoughtful about what mm-hmm. I eat throughout the day or else it's going to be, <laughs> I know I can have like a, problem. <laughs> a banana or like half a picky bar. And then I need to wait like at least a half hour. Yeah. It's the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. tell me what you are totally obsessed with right now. Ooh, well, <laughs> um, I would say, um, all things specific Northwest right now. <laughs> um, I'm hoping to move out there in the spring. So um, I've been um, just kind of looking at places to live. And um, I'm really lucky in that my current job, um, I can transfer within the same company out um, out to Oregon, which is really helpful. Um, so it's pretty much on my mind all day, <laughs> every day. Um, about a month ago, I took a trip out there. So I am just, yeah. All my Instagram is, you know, everything Oregon and Washington. And it's just, I just think it's so beautiful. <laughs> it is, in fact, so beautiful. It's, it's, I mean, I moved here. I don't know if you ever heard the story of how I moved here. It was basically because of Instagram. I, I mm-hmm. used to be on the Wazelle Volley team, you know, their like ambassador yep. running team. And, yep. you know, so started following the Little Wing group, started following Lauren and didn't know any of them, but would just like see these insane pictures that they would post on, on Instagram. Like, what is this beautiful place? Like, I'd never even heard of Bend until that. And then like basically literally moved here because of Lauren's Instagram. <laughs> I was like, thanks, dude. <laughs> it's really funny. So yeah. Yeah, There's worse reasons to move to a place, I guess, than pretty pictures on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, it was very similar for me. And I was just like, I need to see this all with my own eyes. And um, it was, you know, even more beautiful in person. So That's awesome. Well, good. I hope that works out. I hope you wind up coming yeah. here. That's so fun. <laughs> What's the strangest or most random job you've ever had? Ooh. Um... Hmm, I don't know that I've had like 
super random jobs. My one of my first jobs was um, scooping and making ice cream. Nice. Where? <laughs> Which um, it's a it's called Brewsters. Um, they're mostly on the East Coast, um, but it was yeah, it was just a, a random high school job and ended up um, making the ice cream out and back, and of course testing everything that I made, and <laughs> so it was kind of fun. Did you ever get sick of the ice cream? No. <laughs> yeah. See, it's funny. I used to work at Williams Sonoma, and I don't know how much you have been or whatever. They around the holidays, they're really known for their candy, specifically their peppermint bark. It's like the thing. Oh and, yeah, you I know, love that. Right. And I was um, usually on kind of the food side of things, like teaching cooking classes there. You know, doing food sampling, other things too. But you know, and people said you're going to get so sick of the peppermint bark. You're going to get so sick of it. No, I never got sick of it. It was delicious <laughs> the whole time. I ate so much of it. <laughs> Yeah. If you have a free afternoon that's totally yours, what's your favorite way to spend it? Um, really anything outdoors. Um, I So I have like at my apartment, I have like a little balcony that I have all kinds of plants and fun things like that. So a lot of times, um, like if it's a short amount of time that I have just to myself, I, I'll sit out there and either read or um you know, just look at things, um, magazines, things like that. Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely enjoy my alone time outside. <laughs> um, but besides that, I recently have, I've gotten the hiking bug as well. So I've I mean, been listen, you can some... come here, we can go outside, yeah. we can hike, we can read. <laughs> These are all my favorite activities. This is the only thing I want to do is read and hike and be outside. Yeah. Sounds great. It's definitely the path I'm on right now. <laughs> so funny. Um, so the last question, what's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Um, wow. I don't, um, I don't know, I guess. Hmm, that's a tough question for me. <laughs> um, I would say just like, um, I've had, well, I guess this past year has been a difficult for one for me. So kind of just, um, hearing about people's maybe not so, like, I kind of enjoy talking to people with, um, like about things that you may or like have struggled with recently. Um, yeah. I guess for me personally, it was, it was a difficult end to a relationship. Um, so that's just kind of one example, but just things that aren't so, you know, happy, go lucky. Well, I, I love all that stuff, but it's, I think it's hard to, to get into more of a, of a not so great, com- you know, great mm-hmm. um, <laughs> situation. But, you know, I think when talking about it with other people or listening to other people's stories, it's, I find it very comforting um, just to know that, you know, like you say a lot, that you're not alone. And for mm-hmm. me, that's, that's kind of really helpful. Totally. Helped I agree me a lot with you. In the last year, yeah. I feel something I'm thinking about a lot lately is wanting to talk about the exact kind of things that you're mentioning, but while people are still in them. Like, I think it would, mm-hmm. I mean, as much as they're comfortable with, but I feel like it's really easy the farther you get away from something to sort of like tie a bow on it, right? Like, this happened, but I'm all better now, or, you know, whatever, or to make some kind of like a nice story out of it versus the reality of talking to someone who's like in pain or in grief or going through a thing and has no answers. Like, I think there's something about that that I'm really interested into just hearing people being like shit's a mess like this is what's going yeah. on you know so yeah I totally yeah. agree with you no it's true because once you know once you get past it and you have time to think about it and, and think of all the things that happened it's like it kind of starts to look differently whereas mm-hmm. 
if you, you know, if people were will- more willing to talk about things like deep in it, it's, I feel like it would come across a lot different. Yeah, I feel the same way. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and what's your favorite thing about being in our sort of behind the scenes community. Um, well, I, I decided to support the show. Um, like I kind of said, this past year has, has been difficult for me and, and listening to, um, all of your great guests. And, and also I love that, like with your guests, you also kind of open up and talk about your, yourself and your story too. And, um, I've just found a lot of comfort in, in people kind of opening up and sharing where they're coming from and, you know, where they hope to go and, and things like that. So, um, definitely at the end of last year, I didn't want, I didn't want your podcast to go anywhere. So, um, it's kind of why I decided to, to join the, the, um, pod squad and, and, um, no, I love, I love it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. <laughs>